If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We are again in this incredible verse that is loaded with so much truth. Many people have said this is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would grant us the great privilege of performing our duty of beholding the glory of Christ. And for us to behold him, you have, you've given us the means of, of, of preaching, of hearing you. And so as we hear you, may we hear your voice. As the word is proclaimed, may you soften hearts. May you grant repentance to hearts. May you revive souls. May you convert sinners. May you continue to sanctify us. All that happens whenever we behold the glory of Christ Father, you are the sovereign one, and only you can make that happen. So we ask that you do so, all because of what Christ has done for us, in whose name we pray, amen. We are all looking for glory, but not just any glory, we are looking for lasting glory. Our search for this glory is like what I have is called a morphing mug. Maybe you've seen some of these coffee mugs. It's shadowy on the outside, it, it, it's, it's black, it's dark, but then when you pour hot coffee in it, the heat in the cup makes the shadow, or the, the darkness on the outside, uh, flow away and it reveals an image. And as long as there is a a heat in that mug, it shows the image, but the moment that the heat turns cold, it goes back dark. We're all trying to fill our lives with some sort of glory that will last, something that will show us what is beautiful, something that will sustain us, but just like that morphing mug, Eventually, all those things grow cold. How do we attempt this in our lives? How do we seek for lasting glory in our lives? We are often seeking for this glory through job success, marital satisfaction, parenting perfect children, good luck, even things like high school popularity, the perfect friend group in college, 
those unforgettable nights out that often turn out to be very forgettable. Even things like sexual satisfaction or having our political preferences in power or academic prestige, whatever it might be, all these things that we are seeking lasting glory in, they all grow cold. And just like that morphing mug, when it grows cold, we lose the beauty. And what happens whenever these things grow cold, whenever they don't satisfy us, here's what we do. It's one of two things. Either we try something else, or we keep that same thing, and we just try harder at it. And when that doesn't last, there's a number of reactions. Sometimes we end up growing in despair, other times in anxiety, other times in anger and bitterness, other times in laziness, or other times in being a workaholic. <clears throat> All of this is because we're seeking after glory, and when glory escapes us, we react to that. Well, it should be no surprise that as that happens in our individual lives, it is certainly happening in our society. Make no mistake about it that in our society is a massive group of people seeking for lasting glory. And whenever we're seeking for lasting glory, you've seen how this happens today, we demand that other people agree with us about what is most beautiful. We might say that they need to empathize with us or that some people need to be open-minded, but really what we mean is that you must fully agree with what I think. And then what happens is whenever people don't agree with us, we vigorously oppose those who don't embrace what we embrace. And that, no doubt, creates mass division and rivalry and prejudice. And then, as we're trying to seek this lasting glory, in our society, we've put all of our hopes in government and in our political leaders and in their policies. And so then all of a sudden, we only identify ourselves based on political views. And then here's what happens whenever our political leaders, our preferred political leaders aren't in power. Whenever we have any problems, we blame it all on them. You see how all this is happening in our society today because we're searching for lasting glory. This is the most important question today. You realize that, right? Where can we find lasting glory? Is there lasting glory? And if there is, how can we get it? Paul <clears throat> very clearly in chapter 3, verse 18, he is showing that there is lasting glory. Glory that is infinite. Glory that is eternal. And that if you get it, you have absolutely everything. And what is that glory? It is the glory of the Lord. You see that in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. In this context, Paul is saying how different other glories are. Those glories, they don't last. But the glory of the Lord always lasts. And those who have the Lord will find lasting glory. But we need to dive into this more to see what exactly Paul is saying. What is 
are we beholding? <clears throat> you see it here very clearly. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. What is glory? The word for glory means supreme beauty. Glory is the particular amount of honor that is rightly due to someone. It's the splendor which characterizes a person or a thing. In scripture, whenever the glory of God shines forth, it is often accompanied with a actual literal physical or spiritual beaming forth, a glow. You can be reminded actually of uh, the shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, the angel of the Lord appeared. The glory of the Lord shone around them, right? We also see that there is a spiritual glory revealed whenever Peter is in the boat with Jesus. And they catch all this fish and Peter says, go away from me. I'm not worthy. He sees a spiritual glory. Even in this context here and. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about how Moses saw the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai and it shone. You see, the glory of the Lord, its brightness and its beauty, it's not merely light, like a, a light in darkness. Whenever we're in darkness and whenever a light shines, no matter how faint it is, we naturally turn towards it. And Christ is that. He is a light in our darkness. But even when things are going great and it is at midday and so many other glories are shining, Christ is like the sun that is overwhelmingly bright and overwhelmingly more beautiful than anything else. That is the glory of Christ. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for glory, it actually derives from the word weighty. Or heavy. Oftentimes, whenever preaching is most powerful and the power of the Holy Spirit, there is often a sense of weightiness or a sense of being overwhelmed at what you're beholding. Old preachers used to call this unction. It's a sense that you're beholding the glory of the Almighty One. And that is good because glory is something that it overwhelms us into realizing not just how great and glorious God is, but how small and unworthy we are. This glory of God promotes an appropriate godly fear. And glory is it's always present with a royal figure. It's interesting, I saw a video this week, maybe some of you saw it, where there were some mountain bikers uh, somewhere in the UK and they ran across, uh, lo and behold, King Charles just walking down this mud path. And it was just in this place where you didn't expect him, but then all of a sudden they realized, whoa, this is the ruler here. This is, this is the sovereign over these lands. And it was this cool video and these mountain bikers, one of the guys had the audacity to say, yeah, my buddy here, He's a celebrity in the mountain biking world, and this guy very humbly and rightly said, yeah, but nothing like you. They were taken aback at who they were in the presence of, how much more so the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
We are all seeking for glory. Romans 1 tells us that very clearly. Listen to Romans 1, 21 to 23. For although they knew God, talking about they knew God existed, they did not honor him, and literally that word means they did not glorify him as God, and they didn't give thanks to him. But rather than giving glory to God, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, kind of like that morphing mug. <clears throat> Even though they were not glorifying God, they claimed to be wise, but rather they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We are all seeking for glory. But the question is, where are you seeking for that glory? Everyone is doing it. And the problem is not longing for glory. The problem is our twisted and perverted desire to seek for that glory in places and people other than God. St. Augustine said this, you have, talking as a prayer to God, you have made us for yourself and, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. Let me ask you a question. If you and I were made by someone who is infinite, and we were made for someone who is infinite, then do you think that anything finite can satisfy our deepest desires? No. Only someone who is infinite can. That's God. You see, you can't expect to find lasting satisfaction when you don't seek for the one who makes satisfaction last. And it shows us even more of the glory and the grace of God. Think about the privilege of this. God made you to enjoy him. God made you to have the satisfaction that can only happen in one who would never have you be bored. Think about the privilege of this. It is our duty, but what a privilege. We of all creatures were made in this type of a relationship with our God. You see, we need a glory that is infinite and eternal. And that is exactly who our God is. Our God is the infinite one. He is the eternal one. So therefore, because God is infinite in glory, because he is eternal in glory, when you get God, you get lasting glory. Amen? But what is that glory? Well, God's glory is his attributes. What does that mean? It, it's just describing who he is. You know, in 1 John 4, 8, when it says, God is love, it's describing who he is. When it's in Isaiah chapter 6, when the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it's just describing him. His attributes are what we say about who he is. There are certain attributes of God that are so great, are so transcendent that we don't mirror any of that. 
God is infinite, we're not. God is eternal, we're not. We will live on into eternity, but we at one point came into being. God alone is the true sovereign over all creation. God is not only high and above all other creatures, but he is also so near and close no matter where we might go. God is all-sufficient. He needs no one but himself to be eternally happy. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God, unlike us, does not change. Amen? Thank goodness. Because we change all the time. But he remains the same. But God also has attributes where we do image these. God is holy. He is pure. He is spotless. There is no sin or darkness that resides in him. God is justice. God does not live up to a standard of justice. God is the standard of justice. God is love. God is so much Love, that the greatest experience that you've ever had of love pales in comparison to how loving he is. He is wisdom. He is grace. He is mercy. This is what it means to be made in the image of God as we live more like God. So whenever you see these attributes of God, you're seeing his glory. Now, these attributes of God, they're not like a pizza, or as long as you just put all the ingredients on that pepperoni pizza, then and only then do you have a pepperoni pizza. It's not like God is the combination of all these things. You need a little bit of love, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of sovereignty. Rather, God just is who he is. We are just describing who he is with these attributes. That means that whenever you get God, you get everything about that attribute. Do you want wisdom? Get God. Do you want someone who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, no matter what sins, no matter what suffering is in your life? Get God. Do you want someone who is so gracious that no matter what sin you bring before his presence, he will move towards you through Jesus Christ? Get God. Because when you get God, you get his glory. Amen? But where do we see God's glory most? That's what Paul is getting at here. Beholding the glory of the Lord. And in this context, he is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, I want you to hear this. When you get Jesus, you get God. When you see Jesus, you see God. When Jesus and you are united to each other, you are united to God. Because he is God in our flesh. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of God's glory. If you've ever wanted to see the glory of God, you need to look no further than Jesus 
Christ. Amen? Come on now. This is good news. Because the man who lived 2,000 years ago on this earth, who died the sinner's death, who rose victorious from the grave, and who is alive now in heaven somewhere in the fold of space, who is praying for you and me, he is not only just like us in every single way, yet without sin, he is also God. And when you get him, you get lasting glory. That's why we must be a Christ-centered church. Because to be a Christ-centered church is to be a God-centered church. That means we need to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We need to see Jesus in the New Testament. We need to long to see Jesus in heaven. We need to see Jesus as not just man, but also God. We need to see Jesus in his life, in his teaching, in his offices of prophet, priest, and king. We need to see his work of atonement. We need to see him in his resurrection. We need to see him in his ascension. And we need to see him in his coming again. All of it declares the glory of God. <laughs> a biblical church is a church whose first goal with no other rivals. A biblical church is one whose first goal is to behold the glory of Christ. Isaiah 60 verse 7 actually describes the church calling it, God says, it is my beautiful house. That word in Hebrew for beautiful is actually synonymous. It's also used for glory. So it's as if we could say, rightly, it's his glorious house. And that word for house in Hebrew is also synonymous and it can be used to translate for temple. So it could be said, my beautiful house, my beautiful temple, my glorious house, my glorious temple. What is the church? God's new temple. Filled with his glory. That you and I were made for one major thing above all things and it is to behold his glory. Matter of fact, a church is a church when and only when they magnify the glory of God most. In the Old Testament, we see at times the tragedy whenever something called Ichabod happened. Ichabod meant the loss of glory. And Ichabod is often written over many churches that used to proclaim the glory of God, but they got distracted. Ichabod means that the glory of God has left because churches began to prioritize and emphasize things other than the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Why is our mission statement of this church, why is it for the gospel of grace? It's for all of us, especially me included, to make sure that if we stand for something, we stand for the gospel of grace. Because that is literally the base definition of what a church is. 
That's what the base definition of what a Christian is. It is not first and foremost about what you and I do. It's first and foremost about what Christ has done. Amen? That actually fuels mission. It sends us out. But nevertheless, let's not put the cart before the horse. What this means is several implications. What this means is <clears throat> that a church, uh, first and foremost, is to be the house of the glory of Christ. That above all, we are to proclaim Christ's beauty, his majesty, his dignity, the weightiness of the truth that he has accomplished for us. His magnificence, his importance. Because here's the truth. Nothing else compares to the glory of God. Amen? Nothing else compares to that. Because the good news of the gospel at its most foundational truth is this. The good news of the gospel is that you get God. Forgiveness is most important. Justification is absolutely central. Understanding how people grow is necessary for understanding how you walk in the Christian life. But all those things subsist under this one thing, getting God. That's the good news. You see, with God, we get everything. But without God, we can possess the whole world, but yet lose our own souls. See, because if we have someone who is loving and good and holy, sovereign, wise, and beautiful, all power, all powerful and all glorious, if he is all these attributes at an infinite level, as it were, then when you get him, you have everything. Amen? Those of us in here, we might struggle with this concept of seeing Christ as glorious. There can be many different influences to this, but maybe one of those is because you've seen several of your Christian leaders in the past, maybe a parent or a pastor or mentor, you've seen them fail. And you've seen when a, a Christian leader fails, you've seen what it does to you, to your family, to your community, to your church. And maybe you're wrestling with the fact of this, how can I believe this? How can it truly be that glorious if the people who proclaim it most did what they did? It's a fair question. Several years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I had a young man come into our youth group whose dad was a pastor for a long time. This dad of this young man, the dad had built a prominent ministry. He was making a name for himself and he had many of the guys who we read and we look up to. They were praising him. But then at one point during this man's ministry, he sought for glory elsewhere than in Christ. And for him, it was particularly by having an affair. Naturally, <laughs> he was 
finally discovered, because God's word says, be sure that your sin will find you out. And he was discovered, and it ruined his, his, his marriage, his family, his friendships, and obviously his ministry. And for years and years and years, this son lived with a lot of bitterness, and he wanted nothing to do with Christianity, especially Christianity in the PCA, because that's where this minister was a minister. Finally, he came to our youth group just because another kid in my youth group invited him. By the way, never let that seem like too small of a deed to just invite someone to church. He invited him, and this young man was saying, how can I believe in this stuff? How can Christ really be glorious if people like my dad do things like that? Here's one of the things that we need to respond with. Our hope is not in our pastors. And you can say amen to that. It's not. Our hope is not in our elders. It's not in our deacons. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Because the very people who proclaim Christ most are those who need Christ most. Anytime that this church elects for someone to become an officer or a pastor, make no mistake about it. <laughs> Let it be billboarded before everyone, especially that man. That person needs Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in men and women. It's in Christ who came to die for those who live out his mission. And that is very important because we always must remember, and especially those who are ministering most, you must remember because Satan will certainly attack you. You are not beyond the reach of Satan's flaming darts. But even when one of our leaders fails, that does not mean that Christianity becomes untrue. Let me give you an example. You can go to a restaurant and the menu can look so ugly. Atticus has actually taken me to several places around town, which has been really fun. And oftentimes I'm looking at the menu and I'm thinking, can anything good come out of this kitchen? Actually, sometimes we learn that oftentimes those are the best restaurants. The menu, though that might be important, the menu does not determine how good the food is going to be. The chef does. So just because the menu might be torn up, even if the waiter or the waitress is so rude and ugly and you don't want to tip them at all, that does not mean that the food is bad. It's actually the fact that Christ is this glorious is actually the reason why he can cover the heinous sins of those who fall most egregiously. What happened to this young man? This young man, when he came to our youth group, I was preaching through Romans 3, talking about what it meant to be right with God. And the Holy Spirit caused him to be born again. And over time, do you know what happened in his life? And it, it took time. 
But eventually the conversation changed from how could my dad do that? The conversation changed from that to I can't wait to see my dad in heaven. That is how glorious Christ is. Amen? But how do we behold this glory? We actually see in chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, notice speech, let light shine. So there you go, you see speech, but then you see something shining. Let God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the, here's key word, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a good question. How can we see the glory of Christ when Christ is in heaven and he's not here? We see by hearing. We see the glory of Christ as we hear of Christ in the gospel. That's why Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Luke 24, 31 and 32 says this, and their eyes, talking about their spiritual eyes, were opened and they recognized Jesus. And Jesus vanished from their sight. And then these disciples, they said to each other, listen to this, did not our hearts burn within us now listen to this, not by physically seeing Jesus, how did their hearts burn? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. You see by hearing. This is exactly what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai. When God passed by, shining forth his glory, God spoke. He proclaimed his glory. My friends, how do you see the glory of God? This. Because even when something as simple as this happens, when it's faithful to the word, God is speaking. Amen? That means we can't expect to see the glory of God if we're not regularly, consistently hearing of the glory of God. And we see the glory of God most particularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus had the audacity to say, to even pray to the Father in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life. <laughs> That's a bold statement. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because if you know Jesus, you know God. Amen. Paul says in Colossians 1.18 that Christ is preeminent above all other things. That's why he says again in Colossians 3 verse 2, because Christ is preeminent, there might be a lot of other things that might want to have your attention. But Paul says this, set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated. What we have to remember as Christians is that the business of heaven should be the business of earth. My friends, you're not going to enjoy a heaven of beholding the glory of Christ if you don't enjoy beholding him here. And that's why we need time to meditate on the scriptures. What that means is that we must take time to slow down and we must learn to say no to things in order to say yes to what is most important. And let me tell you, most often, 
eats this. You must learn to say no to this so that you can have a focused time with no distractions and, and ringings or buzzings or whatever it might be, and you are just here with God. We need those times even in the life of our church. That's actually one of the reasons, really the primary reason why we are calling this, really the structure of our church, this four-course meal. It's about feasting on God. Things like Sunday school and corporate worship, Sunday evening, and then midweek study. Why are we trying to so often put that forward for you? Because we need regular, consistent times of beholding the glory of Christ in all these different forms. What we must do is we must help each other from getting distracted from things that can take away from beholding the glory of of Christ. A major thing in that is this, <clears throat> particularly speaking of any type of leadership position in this church, whether officially or unofficially, but Christians must learn to see that the chief ingredient of Christian maturity and of any form of leadership, the chief ingredient is someone who beholds the glory of Christ. They can be gifted in many other ways, but nothing replaces beholding the glory of Christ. It's actually interesting because this happened in 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah became king after the two previous kings. One of them was so bad that he was sacrificing his children to foreign gods. How about that? And the king right before Josiah he was so bad, God only let him live and reign for two years. So talk about not having a good track record when you talk about a, a kingdom revitalization work. But it says that such incredible things happened during the reign of Josiah. It says this, that at one point in chapter 34, 34 verse 31, it says, And Josiah, he had taken away all the idols, all the abominations from all the territory of Israel. And he actually had all the people, they were actually serving Yahweh. It says this, all his days, the people of Israel, they did not turn away from following Yahweh. How does that happen? Here's how it happened. Because early on in his ministry, in chapter 34, verse 14, it says this, while there were people who were working on beautifying the temple in Jerusalem, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law. He found the scriptures. And it was when they centered everything around the scriptures that it produced such an effect that there was genuine revival and reformation and maturity and leadership. What do people need most? To behold the glory of Christ. Amen? When we behold the glory of Christ, it does something to us. Now, beholding the glory of Christ, it is an end in and of itself, but it changes us. It changes the self. It changes me. It gives me life and peace, boldness and holiness. It changes the way I relate to others. It, 
It helps me promote peace. It helps me promote truth and friendship and being servant-minded and having humility and love and having a giving attitude. It also affects the way I relate to God. Because now as I see the glory of Christ, I understand God loves me. God is dedicated to me and so I learn to be dedicated to him. I can have assurance and I can have appropriate fear of God and all of his beauty that Christ was sufficient for me on the cross and nothing needs to be added to that, amen? It changes people. You cannot stay the same when you behold the glory of Christ. Major Naismith was a, he was a pretty good golfer, but he had ended up in the Vietnam being a prisoner of war, or in the Vietnam War being a prisoner of war. As he was a POW, he was imprisoned in a coffin-like bamboo cage. He was starved of any stimulation or attention. He was forced just to live in his mind. Legend has it that every day in his mind, he would play a full round of golf at his favorite golf course. He would vividly create, or as it were, recreate the course in his mind, the sights, the sounds, the smells, He would imagine the clothes that he would wear. He would create the weather conditions. And he would even choose the friends he would want to be playing with in his imaginary world. Every single shot would be recreated in his mind, even to all the details, even within apparently a couple of feet. Finally, after seven years of being a POW, Major Naismith was finally released. And when he went back to play golf, His first round of golf, though he hadn't played in at least seven years, it was 20 strokes lower. Now, that study that where I'm getting this from, the whole point of that study is to say, see what can happen just as you mentally picture what you're doing. You can improve merely there. And that can be good, and that's great. But my friends, if that can happen merely mentally in our areas of golf or work or marriage or whatever it might be, if just picturing that just pure mentally can help, what can, what can meditating on the glory of Christ do for you and me? What can beholding the glory of Christ do to our souls? Far more than you and I can ever imagine. That is what you and I need most. That is what society needs most, is to behold the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are asking yet again that you would drive these truths down into our hearts. By the Holy Spirit, drive them into our hearts and make us more devoted to you, to behold your glory, particularly your glory in the gospel of grace. Would you help us to think greatly about the greatness of the glory of Christ? And as we see him, may we be transformed into his image. We ask all this in his name. Amen.